listening to Shoot It Now, your weekly podcast about indie filmmaking and big-budget films with award-winning filmmaker Craig Newland. And welcome to another Shoot It Now podcast. In this episode, we're going to rewind and look at three previous podcasts with three different filmmakers. And it's going to give you the opportunity to listen to selected segments from all three of them in one episode. The first filmmaker is Henk Hang Lokten, one of the writer-directors of Babylon Berlin, which is one of Netflix and Europe's most successful series. And I started out by asking Henk how it's possible that all three writer-directors work so well together. I think it's a it's a pretty special situation that we we have with Babylon Berlin. Tom came up with the idea very early on, and he said, uh, "Well, we're going to do it all the three of us." Nachim and I were going like, oh, "Okay, well, who's who's writing which episode?" And so, so no, we're doing everything together. And after a while, we found out that it's three is a very good number because if you're there alone, you know how it is. You're you're isolated. You're depressed. You can't talk to anybody. And if you do, everybody would go like, oh, please (laughs) tell me something else. When you co-write them with one other person, so you have two, it's it's always antithesis and it takes a while until uh, you have a synthesis. And you always have, with two people, you always have to have somebody who's the boss in the end because otherwise you have a balance that will, you know, go on forever. With three, it's a very different situation because three is the smallest number of an audience. Because when we're sitting in a room, the three of us, and one has an idea and says, why don't we do it this way? Before you start to um, actually, you know, argument or, or speak for the idea, you can see in the expression of the faces if it's a good or a bad idea. It's like with an audience. and go like, oh, yeah, it's the little instinct uh, that you have there. So, so three is, is the smallest uh, audience amount. And then the other thing is, that um, three is also a very dynamic number because um, it's never equal. You know, it's like always, there's always somebody who has a very good day or somebody who has a bad day, but you can always, there's always an equilibrium. So it moves on. It's a very dynamic process. The way we write, actually, technically, we just do it this way. We have our little beat boards. We write it down, just the action. Charlotte meets Gary on full stop. 40 of these um, little cards, which we put on the wall, that's per episode, about 30 to 40. And then we say, okay, you take the first 10 cards, you take the second, and you take the last 10 to 15 cards. And then uh, and then we write that first draft, but, and, and then we give it to the next writer. So it goes around and around, and we don't even talk about the first draft. You just read it. For example, I got something from Tom, 15 pages. I just read them and go over them. You know, change whatever I want to. And then I give it to Achim and he does the same. We just stop discussing things because in the end, uh, it always comes down to, okay, so if you think you can do it better, then do it better. And and that's, that's uh, how we uh, are working now. So it's not even really counting how many drafts because you wouldn't know how many drafts, right? It's just going around in a circular motion or backwards and forwards. Somebody might be away for a day. So very easy to lose just how many times that has had treatment across it. Yeah, well, that's absolutely right. I think that the uh, first four episodes per season have many, many more drafts than the last episodes. It's the same like in the editing room. I don't know if if you have experienced the same thing, but for me, 
with every single film I made, I've spent like 80% on the first 15 minutes. And then, you know, once you have them, everything is fine. So, so the first episodes are always the toughest. And the, and, and the very first episode is the toughest one always. Tell me about the way that you've shot the series, because you are all directors and people might think, oh, well, they shot an episode on their own each. But this was not the case, which I found really fascinating from a directing point of view, but rather you shot different locations within one episode. So you're all working on the one episode. Most directors would say, well, how does that even begin to work? So just explain a little bit more about how all three of you are able to work on a single episode. That works because we have written, everybody has written every scene. So everybody feels that this is his scene. In the end, when it comes down to uh, directing, I mean, you know, the, 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 the shooting schedule of Babylon Berlin is a nightmare. For the first ADs, it's just a nightmare because we have about 300 speaking parts here and uh, to get all these actors on these days that we need them, it's just crazy. So it's not like uh, we sit down before shooting and go like, oh, I, I would like to shoot the Mocha FD and you could shoot, you know, Rad's home or something like that. No, it's, it's, uh, it's about always about the availability of the actors. So you end up with, you know, whatever. And we have three DOPs. That's also a, an interesting part of the whole thing. So um, we have three blocks, you know, um, always it's about two months. One, one starts, let's say Achim starts, then I come in and then Tom does the last block. So if you're the first one, you just start shooting, you know, and, and you go like, okay, the, the others will just have to follow. But in the end, you know, well, let's put it this way. Before we started, before we started the whole show, we were going like talking about concepts and uh, how should we do the lighting? How should we do the camera movement? How should we do the framing, the block, blah, blah, blah. We were sitting there with our DOP, so six of us, and we we're talking like students, film students. And uh, But after a while, we found out, well, listen, guys, we everybody here in this room has made some films. So why don't, why don't we just do it the way we can do it best? And everybody's completely free to do whatever he wants to do. And this is how we actually did it. And the strange thing is, why does it come together? And, and, and we also edit it together in, you know, in the editing room. We all go through the scenes of, 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 of the other directors. The strange thing is, I, I think this is a concept that would not work in a, in a, on a different show. Because Babylon Berlin is a mosaic or a panoramic view of a city in a, in a certain time. So we have many, many different storylines. We have many, many different characters that are told uh, parallel. So you jump from one story to the other, you jump from one location to the other. This is what makes the whole thing pretty vivid, that there's always a different director coming in. Because imagine if you would split it up, for example, okay, you're the director in this season that does all the dancing scenes, for example. Then you would go there and say, okay, well, I've got a you know, great bunch of dancing scenes. I've got 10 dancing scenes, uh, very different locations. One is in a big club, one is in a very small bar, etc., etc. I mean, after a while, you would yeah, just simply run out of ideas. But <laughs> in the way we are working, you, you see the rushes of one of the other directors and you go like, oh, I have... I, I thought it would be completely different, but I, I think I like it, or even sometimes I don't like it. 
But now it's my turn to shoot a dancing scene. So there's always kind of a dynamic process going on, like a positive rivalry, if you if you understand what I mean. So you, you never, you know, run out of ideas because you always see what the others are doing. And you go like, ah, okay, so we have this. We have a very, very slow one-shot scene, for example. So I'm not going to do another one-shot scene in this episode. So there's always a very fruitful, you know, taking and giving between the three of us. If we come back to the blocks, the three blocks, I just want to understand this correctly. When you say that one goes off and does the filming, their filming as a director, and then your turn will be second. So you are not filming three different parts all at the same time. They're running three blocks, as you said, yeah. and they're yeah. at different times. So the first block films, and then you're watching the rushes in the editing room before you have stepped up and done your bit on that episode right and then you get the sense of what that director has brought and as you say with the dancing scene you might have preconceived an, an idea on how you were going to shoot something and then you see something else that will inform you of how perhaps you want to take it in a different direction right and that's that keeps the whole thing uh, quite uh, lively also the uh, the actors tell us that it helps them to work this way. Because of course we don't shoot chronologically at all. You could also say, well, I mean, how does that work? You know, uh, one actor uh, shoots a scene that might be in, in episode 13, and then, and then the next day somebody comes that shoots many scenes from, from the beginning of the show. How does that all come together? Well, you know, it's like human beings are. It, it, it doesn't really come together. It's it, because you're one day you're like this, one day you're like that. This is this is what keeps the whole thing alive, and um, and what what keeps the whole thing together is, for example, the costume department, the art direction, and uh, and and of course the actors because they look the same. So the working with, with the actors and actresses is. Well, let's put it this way. Um, let's say we have a mutual friend and we talk about this mutual friend. You would say, well, I think he's a very funny character. And I would say like, oh, yeah, he's funny, but I don't really like his jokes. So we see different things in different persons. And this is how we treat our characters and uh, how we actually work with our actors. Can you give us an idea, Hink, of how long a single episode would take on average to shoot? It would be about 11 shooting days. Yeah, that's the average that we have per episode. Some episodes have very complicated scenes and, and you even sometimes need two or three days for one scene. And that means that, that for other scenes, you have to be very, 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 very fast. For example, for the uh, season three, we had a crazy schedule. Sometimes we, we shot up to 10 and even up to 11 pages a day, which we, we swore never to do again uh, because that was really, really crazy. The average per episode is about 11 days. And what about the editing process? How long will it take you to edit a single episode? Well, that's hard because uh, we treat the whole thing as a, as a film. We are always negotiating with uh, the uh, executives um, that we are not willing to deliver episode one before episode 12 yeah, or 16 um, because... We, we really, uh, also in the editing process, we treat it as a film. For example, the very first scene of Babylon in the, um, the first episode, you have this hypnosis situation and you go into the character, the main character's mind 
Gillian Rath's mind. This was a scene that was not meant to be the first scene. It was the, it was the last scene of episode 16. So the last scene of season two. And when we watched it, it was always like, well, it's, it's good. But, you know, the, the beginning with this train, because the second uh, um, scene is a train that go through the night and that there's a, there's a burning tree falling on, on the tracks. That was always the beginning. The, the problem was that in that scene, which is a very good scene, but it's not a good opening scene because you don't know anybody in this scene. And for the audience, you sense that there is not one character in this scene that will be important throughout the whole show. So we had to find that out. We just found it out in the editing process. So we really had to come up with an idea. After a while, we said, okay, why, why don't we use the last scene and uh, recut it and uh, use it as an intro? So what we are doing is we're going through the whole thing over and over again. So I can't tell you really how long we take for an episode until it's finished. But in a good cut where you can see it, I would say we have about four weeks per episode. So tell me the discussions leading up to filming the first series and how you decide to set the bar so high to achieve this type of excellent production quality. Well, I would say it's freedom. It's just do whatever you want, but uh, you know, stay in your schedule and uh, you know, what does the scene need? And this is something that uh, every director always can completely design on, on his own. You know, the whole thing, Craig, is a little bit like uh, this children's game where one paints a head and then you flip it over and the next one would go uh, with a throat and the next one with the stomach and so on. And then in the end, you, you look at the whole picture and, and you, have a, you have a funny you know, character. This is a little bit like Babylon <laughs> Berlin works. But this is why it's so unpredictable. And this is, you know, very underestimated. You have to be unpredictable in a, in a TV show, in a story, in a, in a novel, whatever you, 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 your storytelling is. You have to be unpredictable. If the audience knows what's going to come next, this is the definition of boredom. You know, the unpredictable thing that you're talking about there, it's unpredictable for you because you don't know what the other two have gone out and shot until you're sitting in front of a monitor watching the rushes. I mean, sure, you've all written the episode, but you don't know really how they're going to, to shoot it. I just want to come back to the, the block. Just correct me if I'm wrong. So having the three blocks, if you are the first person that is out there shooting and then you mm -hmm. finish and then the second person goes out to shoot, you can at that point go to the edit room and start editing your scenes while the second person is filming. Is that right? Right. Correct. What is the third director doing? Pre-production mostly, preparing uh, his, his block. The second filmmaker we catch up with on this Shoot It Now Rewind is Francois Girard, a Canadian writer-director who directed The Red Violin, who Samuel Jackson says is one of his top five films of all time. Francois also directed Silk, and his latest film The Song of Names stars Clive Owen and Tim Roth. I started out by asking Francois about his Grammy that he won with Peter Gabriel and just what that experience was like musically. That's the only thing I've ever done live, like a, a live production. It came to me unexpectedly. Peter came to me and asked me if I would shoot it, like to adapt it into a, um, a feature-length film. 
and like many others, like a, a fan of Peter's work, and I've been following it from his early beginnings uh, with Genesis. And I uh, joined the band. Like I followed, the, I traveled with the band for three months, studying the show, and we came up with this very complicated, like multi-camera shoots where the cameras are moving song to song. And then I had the tremendous pleasure just hanging around these guys, like a great, great band became good friend of with Manu Kachi and like Peter, who's been like a real gentleman, a real pleasure to work with. Apparently it had the um, recognition in the Academy and then we won that Grammy. Like and I felt very accidental to me. Well, how, how cool is that? Because you love music and just to go on the road with these guys for three months you must have reveled in that yes absolutely following them being with them like there's this um, band i was uh, touring with peter papa wembe and they did the uh, every night they did the uh, the first uh, the first part like the opening uh, show we would all gather with Peter and the band, we, and we would dance backstage to warm up for his band. And then we would hit the floor, and like, oh, they would hit the floor and, and perform the, this incredible show. And with some music that I've grew up with, and some others, like, or lived with, and some new songs that I was discovering then, really, truly wonderful. And I heard you say that 50% of people younger than the age of 30 don't know the word Holocaust. It's filmmakers like yourself that help propel and keep alive the memory of history. And we forget in 2020 that this might be the case with the younger generation. It certainly shocked me to learn that, and I'm sure it's shocking to others as well. If these stories by filmmakers are not told, then the statistics will only get worse. And if we can't remember history, there is a greater chance of repeating it. Did it feel like somewhat of a mission and almost a responsibility for taking a, a project like the Song of Names, you know, going on this journey? Yes, uh, uh, absolutely. The um, I think we're all collectively increasingly captive of the present technologies that um, are surrounding us. The little screens that we have in our hands or on our desk are sort of sucking us into the present of the present. And then we become, I think, more and more detached and uh, lose touch with the past and the future. And, and you just said it beautifully. It's, if we cannot keep track of the previous generations and what happened and the victories and the beautiful things that happened, but also the incredible, horrible chapters in genocides and holocausts and other dark corners of our history. Like if we cannot keep sight of that, I think we are handicapped in facing the future. Film, I think, is still a beautiful vehicle to travel in time and to escape from that, the jail of the present. Uh, but it's, you know, like literature does the same thing, music. I think as an artist, I do feel responsibility to address that and, and look back and, and look forward. Like, like I'm just working on a project now that is not set in the past, but in the future. And, and it's a similar experience where you're trying to get perspective on what's happening now. And God knows that there's a lot happening now. So I think, I think it's important to step back, take some distance or some altitude and try to understand the, the larger arcs that are driving our world at the moment. Having a look at uh, casting a film, it's often a puzzle of figuring out how all of the character pieces fit together. 
Now, your latest film, The Song of Names, I feel because you have the lifespan of characters from a young boy to an older man, this becomes even more of a challenge. And to compound it further, you have the playing of the violin. Uh, just how difficult was that to put all of the casting pieces in place for your latest film, The Song of Names? Yeah, you're, you're right. Like, I, I mean, like the contribution of a director to a movie, 50% of the impact a director has on the movie is choosing the actors. And everything else, every, everything else you do over two years, over three years, over one year uh, is the other half. The human beings you bring in front of the camera, just choosing them, picking them, putting them together is essentially the greatest impact that you will ever have over the piece. That notion grows in you as you grow older. You realize the good picks you've done, you realize your past mistake. And the more you go to each new film, like you know, you know, you have to get that right. If that's not right, nothing else will be right. In this case, there was an um, additional stress where, and that was very um, highly visible right from the top. When I read the script the first time, I immediately saw that I was in front of a, a real challenge. That turned out to be the biggest, my biggest challenge in this movie was to uh, bring these two characters to life. Martin and Davidol are a pair at uh, 10 years old, at 20 years old, and at 55 years old. Like we grow, like it's not only 10 and 20, like we go 10 to 20, and then we meet them again at 55. And so I needed three actors for each of them. You're sort of putting together three pairs or two trios, whatever way you look at it. And you move one piece and the whole thing becomes unstable. So you're really looking for a group of six actors to create two parts. And Martin and Davidol, I think there's one scene in the entire movie where they're not there. So like that challenge is in, was in my face every page of the script in every shooting day in every day of the in the editing room it was a battle from beginning to end you know like this is where most of my attention and my work went we started by finding the older ones like Clive Owen and Tim Roth then we found the, the younger ones and then and it was a long it was a long journey it was a long year of searching and and finding is it true for you that the longer days that you have to shoot, the longer time that you have to ferment and shape the film, which leads to more creative discoveries, but a shorter time to shoot, there's a lot less time to mull over and ponder about what you're doing. In other words, you just get on with it. Sometimes just getting on with it in a fast way can be beneficial for a film. So tell the audience, uh, Francois, how you look at those two polar opposites and implement your workload? Well, you put it um, like in a very eloquent way. And also you're very well informed. How, do you, how did you find out how many days I had for Red Valley? I, I did have uh, 64 days, which is the most I've ever had. And in that case, it was needed. Like we were like setting and restarting with a new team in five different countries. And we were a very small core team. So we needed to be careful and like, you know, establish relationships like and not push it. In retrospect, I realized how much of a luxury it was. I never had that time after, like this is the most I had. And But you also write to say, because I, I've always thought of myself as a, the slow guy, like, you know, if I can, you know, 
give me 10 years to write a movie and I'll take it and I'll be happy to do it like mm -hmm. in 10 years. And then in length and in time, you could also lose the energy. You could also overthink. You can lose yourself. Sometimes in precipitation, when you're forced to, forced to hit a deadline, if you're forced to shoot faster, there's an energy in it and that could be uh, that you could turn to your advantage and that could serve the piece. And sometimes thinking and thinking time and, you know, over brewing everything is not like helping. Sometimes there's another part of yourself as an artist that could be put to work. Uh, the heart, the, the physical impulses and the energy into moving fast with a large group of people, there's stuff in that that, you know, could be very productive. Every adventure, every film, every theater, every play, every opera has its own rhythms. And it's almost like if sometimes the text and the nature of the piece is imposing its own rhythms on you and then it's becoming more about reading that and embracing it than trying to put your own rhythms. You find very, like early on, like you find that your level of control is very slim, especially in film, but also in other mediums. But in film, you play a lot with nature. Like there's a, a great dance with sun, with the weather, with the skies. And you got, there's two ways you can go about it. Like if you, if you shoot the games of thrones, you, you, there's so much light that you can access that you can actually beat the sun and make day and nights and nights and days. Or you have to dance with the sun and you have to dance with what happens. And you're not going to be, if you're trying to control it, you're going to lose. When you're working with a DP, how hands-on are you? In other words, are you the type of director that is more broad strokes or more detailed from scene to scene working with your cinematographers? I think I tend to leave the light to the cinematographer, but I'm closer to language, to the frame, to the uh, storyboarding, to move the camera around and pick a lenses. So the, the, like that is, would be more composition is more, I've got better results when I st stepped out of light, lighting and let David is a master of, you know, everybody's trying to do dark. Like everybody loves dark. David can do dark and show every face. There's not one shot where you won't be able to read the face, although the film is quite dark. And that's an art because there's a lot of younger, not necessarily younger, like lesser DPs who will go dark and then dark is all you see. So David has a, a, a real talent of keeping that balance. And I will let it let him do it because I'm, I, I love his light so much and I, I'm busy when he does it anyways. But placing the camera, moving the camera and picking the lenses has always been uh, something I was close to. And storyboarding, do you do that as well as shot listing? Yes, but I've learned my first film was all storyboarded before I started shooting. And then the next one was less storyboarded. And then what I discovered, and I'm trying to push that, I follow that rule as much as possible. The later you make the decisions, the better. If producers, if there's special equipment that needs to be used, so probably it's possible that a couple of weeks or three weeks or sometimes months in advance, you need to design a shot. Because people need to know because you're playing with expensive toys and because you're in a very crazy location, sometimes because of your own ambition, you have an uh, ambitious shot. But if you can decide the morning of the shoot, like sitting with your DP and flip the whole scene because suddenly you discovered that your actor or your actress 
reads better in a different like whatever you've learned from what you've done the day before like uh, this it's so intangible sometimes uh, sometimes a profile will be a left profile would be preferable to the right profile and if you should be sensible to those things and that a certain lens will land great with uh, uh, this actor not so well with this other actor and if you learned that yesterday then change your decision if you can this morning by the time the camera shows up on set you, you everybody should know where you want it but the later you're going to make that decision so it's a trade like you know if you can make it late then use a luxury and if you need to do it early like serve the team serve the serve the production but i would say the later the better so do you normally have a shot list or have you shot a film without any shot list like a shot list like written on uh, on the text processor no i would draw a lot show up on set with a piece of paper that is a uh, all positions sometimes i would do it in the car going there and my assistant would go in a xerox uh, copier and as people show up on set they would get they would get their diagrams and language and they get on set that they know where they know where we're going they know they know what's happening they know the dance you find a way to communicate the dance to the large number of people are around you and the third filmmaker we catch up with on this Shoot It Now Rewind is John Gilbert, an Academy Award winner for Best Editing on the Mel Gibson-directed film Hacksaw Ridge. And I asked John about the confidence in editing, and the more confident you become as an editor, the better the result is going to be realised in the completed edit. That's true, but you can be confident in the process. I think when I first started out, I thought I had to be able to answer all the questions straight away. I had to be able to solve all the problems and know what to do. Now, I don't. I, don't. I trust in the process. I'm confident that if I dig in and keep working and keep going forward, the answers will show up. And I think that's an important thing to know that you don't have to solve all the problems immediately. You don't have to have all the answers. You need to engage in sort of a conversation with the film and the footage and the director and just keep making it better and go forward and trying to define exactly what the film is about, what are the themes of the film, what's the focus. And these things change as you go forward, as you collaborate with the director and uh, as you show it to various people, you get very close to the film and there are a lot of things you start to take for granted. You've got to try and put yourself in the shoes of a person seeing the film for, for the very first time. And it's quite difficult to do when you've watched it a hundred times. So uh, you've got to have little tricks to give yourself some distance from the material. If you're watching the film from beginning to end every day, I think that's a mistake. I think you've got to work on little pieces of it and then treasure your experiences of watching the whole film and, and use them as a way to be that first audience for the film. Take it out of the editing room, put it on a TV at home with some other people, take it to a screening room, watch it in different environments, things like that help, help you see it for the first time. A cinematographer is always an actor's best friend because they know with a master cinematographer at work, it's their job to make the actor look the best that they can. And the same can be said for an editor who is constantly correcting an actor's performance, which can be anything from head movement, eye blinks, a good smile from a bad one, a reaction that's wrong, a piece of dialogue replacement, whatever the case. And an editor has equal power 
in the same way a cinematographer does for making an actor not only look good, but be credible within their character's arc, which all leads to a better portrayal of performance. So, so John, give our listeners an overview of some of the ways you improve performances of actors through editing. Well, that is one of the key tasks with the editor is going through an actor's material. You're always looking, well, I'm always looking for the performance that I believe. The worst thing you can have is an actor that's self-conscious, that's constantly stopping and starting and is too aware of the camera. A performance is taken from any number of takes. It's, it's all the moments. If you haven't got a good reading of a particular line, you can always play that line off somewhere else, play it on someone else's reaction. Any bad performance, any performance you don't feel is real, I think takes you out of the film. And there's nothing worse than bad performance. If bad performance shows up early in a film, I'll quite often just sort of walk away. It switches me off totally. So, uh, you know, quite often we'll use the dialogue from one take against the picture for another take. You know, size of shots, important. Poor performance in a big close-up is is much worse than a poor performance in a wide shot. You know, there's any number of tricks to help an actor along. um, The main thing is the film, of course. It has to serve the film. If it's your lead actor and the film hinges around them, you you know, you have to work a lot on on their performance. And I've certainly, I mean, rescued is a big word, I I suppose, but I've certainly improved made some actors look a lot better than I thought they were in the dailies. It's tough being an actor. I, I think it's, it's one of the toughest jobs there is because you're you're up there naked on the screen. Uh, everyone can see every little nuance of what you're doing. And uh, I can't imagine, you know, how you would remove yourself from that desire to be conscious of how people are seeing you. But that's something they've got to do. So, you know, I have a lot of regard for, for them and the work they do. So... You know the script inside out by the time the dailies show up on day one. How does your mind process what comes in? In other words, are you starting to analyse anything that may not be matching the script or do you go with what you are viewing and remain open to what you're seeing? What sort of approach do you take down that track? I think it's important to react to the footage rather than be locked into what what the script was suggesting. I think quite often you will go in a different direction to what you were expecting. So you want to kind of forget about the script to some extent. I think you want to keep it in the back of your mind, but you want to be open to other possibilities because things happen on set that that could be better than what, what was in the script. It's interesting, I say, when I read the script and the dailies show up and it's not as good as what I imagined, that's always disappointing. But sometimes the dailies show up and they're better, they're better than what you imagined because what's on the page isn't always what's in the director's head. The director may have some idea how the action plays out and you've got a, a script with just the dialogue in it, so you kind of imagine that. Yeah, when it comes in and the action somehow compounds or magnifies what was in the script in a way, in a good way, that's always incredibly uh, exciting. But yeah, sometimes it comes in and it's not as good as you imagined it. So you've got to be open to the possibilities. I think you've got to be reacting to the footage that you get because now you're making a film and what you've got is what's on the screen, not what was on the page. There are directors that won't be as flexible with editors running off in different directions from the script. They prefer to keep it somewhat contained in the story. It's their vision, their film, which is being realized. Okay, that's fair enough. An editor has sometimes that fine line 
of knowing what to fight for and push for and when to retract. I guess a good editor is like a good diplomat who knows the art of communication. Is that how you see it? I think that's true. I always put the film together as scripted during the shoot. And if I've got other ideas about things, I will quite often keep them to myself or do like a B version on the side if I have time, which I will show to the director at the right point. But there, there could be things that I strongly disagree with during the process. And, you know, I can make a suggestion. If the director says, no, I don't want to do that, I'll just put it aside. Because quite often the things that you feel strongly about, they might, might not end up in the film. Or, you know, you've got, say, 20 things that you felt quite strongly about, and you get to the end of the film and there's only four of them left by the time you've finished editing. And then you can have a conversation when you're getting closer to the end, if you still feel strongly about it. But I think, you know, you've got to say what you think. You know, there's no point in having a fight about it. The director's the director and, you know, they may well be right. Even though you're confident in what you're saying, you still have to understand that it is a collaborative process and the director's also got um, a lot of insight into what he's trying to do and there is a chance that um, you're wrong and he's right. So um, carry on and if anything really offends you towards the end of the film, stick your hand up again and maybe at that stage he'll agree with you. You just don't know, he or she. How often, John, in your career have you had to deal with tonal shifts that you had to re-correct and get back into the groove of the tone of the film? That's most often a problem when actors have uh, different performances, say uh, they're not as naturalistic or more comedic. Getting the performances all into the same world is, is very important. So calibrating the performances, finding takes which are more naturalistic, trying to pull them into the same world. Uh, that's what you're doing all the time when you're looking at actors' performances. I think music is important for tone. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's something that's intuitive, really. It's uh, You're always trying to get a consistent tone in the film, and it's something the director should be aware of as well. And if things go off kilter, you, you know, that's a serious problem in a film. And I don't think I've had any major problems with tone shifting do you think directors pay enough attention to the first five minutes of a film? Well, the first five minutes of the film is uh, incredibly important. Obviously, how you, how you draw an audience into the film, you don't get a second chance. If, if a film, if the audience is switched off at the beginning of a film, you've lost them. In the cinema, you might hold them for a while, but on television, they're gone. They're off channel surfing, whatever. So quite quite often I will leave the beginning and the end until very late in the process because I find that we're always working on the beginning and the end. It's not always what's on the page. Again, you're looking for something which will excite the audience. You don't, you don't want to be too contrived in the way you drag an audience in. I think it's a really good idea, though, that you leave the front and the end to the end because so much changes throughout plotting the way the edit goes for the majority of the film. It's a mistake to actually try and do that whole setup at the beginning when you first start editing a film. Yeah, that's true. I mean, you're trying to draw the audience into the world of the film and you need to give them enough substance so that characters are interesting but you've got to keep moving the story forward. So you're trying to do a lot of different things at once. There's always a balancing act between setting up the themes and the characters so that when things start to happen to them later on, uh, it has enough, you have enough emotional connection with those characters. If you go straight 
into story too early, quite often you'll find that you don't care enough about the characters. So it is a balancing act between those two things. You have to move it forward. And, and there, there are films which have got very slow beginnings, which pay off brilliantly at the end, as long as the audience has the patience to stay with it. And there are other films with great bang-bang beginnings which run out of steam. So, you know, it can be misleading to have an incredibly action-packed opening. I think Raiders of the Lost Ark departed from the old way of doing things. They had brought in this idea of a seven-minute action opening as a way of starting a film. And then they went back and did the setup once they figured that they had shown the audience how exciting the rest of the film was going to be. So that was a, a new structure in a way which uh, Spielberg started with Raiders. And I think a lot of people do that now is they'll, they'll put a little five seven minute uh, action scene on the front i mean james bond does it as well they have their pre-story scene i love uh, just before we wrap up john editing stories where a director has come up with an idea it hasn't been shot so you are forced to go to the lifeboat so to speak find a collection of shots to see if you can structure the proposition into a workable scene I'd love to hear any example that you've been in this situation and pulled off something that perhaps when the director first mentioned it to you as an editor, you thought, well, I think that's probably going to be an impossible task. Is there anything that comes to mind? I have done that from time to time, uh, had bits and pieces of, of scenes and then played lines of dialogue on the backs of people's heads and reworked. I am reminded of one scene in Lord of the Rings where we had a forced perspective shot looking down a table with Gandalf and um, Bilbo. Forced perspective is quite difficult to do, and once you've set it up, it's very difficult to move the camera because the artifice becomes evident. And Peter had set this thing up where the camera and a table was on a fulcrum, so when you moved the camera, the table moved as well to maintain the illusion of the forced perspective. Then we decided we were going to lose the first few lines of dialogue in the scene, and that's where the camera move was, which was really upsetting because it was such a great move. And so what I did was I got the line where we were coming into the scene, I chopped up the dialogue to fit into um, Ian McKellen's mouth so that we could use the original camera move, but I put different dialogue into into his mouth so we could use that piece of the shot. So that's the, the kind of thing I think you're talking about. You've been listening to Shoot It Now with Craig Newland, your weekly podcast about all things behind the camera and in front of it. Until next time, have a great week.